0: The title of today's message is very simple. Change your mind, change your life. And this is not some humanistic um, uh, little message here that just says, you know, we can just all do this in ourselves, but it's, it's based on the scriptures. Change your mind, change your life. It's the human side of destiny. God has a destiny, and we'll talk about that in just a few minutes, Um, but there is God's side and there is our side, and those two have to come together if we're ever going to experience life the way God intended for us to experience it, and so we'll be looking in a little while at Romans chapter 12, uh, a couple verses there that you're very familiar with, but what I want to Just discuss with you this morning is the fact that God has promised us an abundant, overflowing life. Jesus said uh, in John 10:10, New King James, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Or the Passion translation reads: I have come to give you everything in abundance more than you expect, life in its fullness until you overflow. Uh, you know, the Lord talks about what he's going to do, and then he gives you those adjectives that kind of describe it. It's like, I believe, in John chapter 8 when he says, the Son has come to set you free. He who is free is what? Free indeed. Okay, it's like, it's like that overabundance, that, that promise of, of the good life. Third John, uh, the first verse, John is writing now, he's somewhere in his 90s. Uh, He walked with the Lord for three and a half years uh, while Christ was on earth, and for another 60-some years after Christ had gone to heaven, now as a very old man, still vibrant, living many, many years, he prays, and he said, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, and then this line, just as your soul prospers. And I wanted you to keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that a little later. Well, here's the question. Are we living the abundant life that Jesus promised? Are we experiencing life to the full? used to be a, a writer that I would uh, check out her articles in Good Housekeeping magazine. This is like 40 years ago. Uh, her name was Irma Bombach. You may or may yeah, Some of you are smiling. You, you remember Irma. She, she wrote a book. I was cleaning out my attic one day, and I, and I found a book that had belonged to my grandmother written by Irma Bombach. I haven't read the book, but I love the title. She said, if life is a bowl of cherries, what am I doing in the pits? Good question. If Jesus has promised us an abundant life, why is life such a struggle? So our our message this morning is about the process of, of transformation and how we can begin to experience true and lasting transformation in our own personal lives as we live out the abundant life that Jesus promised because I believe that promise is for every one of us. New Year's is a time when sometimes we, uh, we take inventory. Perhaps we make resolutions. I won't ask you how many uh, made resolutions this year. I won't ask you how many kept the resolutions you made last year, but it's something we kind of do. And so I think it is maybe good at the beginning of the year to take inventory, Uh, Even the Apostle Paul talked about taking inventory when he says, examine yourselves and and see if you're in the faith. It's good once in a while to ask yourself the question. And so I would ask you the question this morning, are you living the abundant life? Are you experiencing the overflow uh, that Jesus has for you? I remember several years ago when I was struggling with a few things uh, personally, and I was trying to get it all together, and I was walking it out. I was doing okay, but I, I wasn't really where, where I wanted to be, and, and a pastor friend walked up to me, and he goes, John, are, are, are you free? Yeah, I'm free, but I haven't quite gotten to the indeed. I know there's something more. Maybe you're there this morning, okay? And it's the indeed. It's the overflow. And I want to tell you this morning how to experience the indeed, how to experience not just life, but life overflowing. And so I think we need to understand, first of all, that transformation is not an event. It is a process. From my Uh, background, being raised in a Pentecostal church with a strong emphasis on the infilling of the Spirit. Uh, And then my uh, uh, biblical education, Bible college, was uh, of the Wesleyan persuasion, which also believed in a second crisis experience of grace. Uh, The Pentecostals said you will be empowered. The Wesleyans said you would be purified, but either way, there was an expectation that I could go to the altar, and I could have an experience with God, and and everything was going to be great, and it would be the overflow from there on out. The only problem with that theology is that it doesn't work. (laughs) took me years to find that out. I mean, they would give an altar call, and I'd be the first one down at the altar, and I'd be there, and I'd cry, I'd pray, I'd call on God, God would meet me in a special way, and I'd walk out, and i okay, I've got it now. It usually lasted till about Monday morning. <laughs> and so it took me years to realize that it's, it's, not, it's not the process. Transformation starts with a commitment, it continues with a process, and then it produces an ongoing desired result. So Romans chapter 12, uh, the first part of that um, chapter uh, in the NIV, we see commitment. I beseech you therefore, brethren, that word brethren, by the way, does not mean men, it means men and women, it's a plural word. Uh, for men and women. Uh, if you're from the South, it's y'all. I beseech you, therefore, y'all, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. NIV says your spiritual act of worship. I compared the two versions. I wanted to know which one was correct. They both are. It is your reasonable service, your spiritual act of worship. Sometimes one Greek word takes a couple sentences to make uh, get the full meaning in the English. So there's your commitment. But that commitment has to move on into a process. Here's the process. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Mind renewal, and those, the verbs there are, are present tense. It is something that is happening. It is a process. And then there's a desired result. What's the result? That you may prove what is good and acceptable, uh, the perfect will of God. Look at the Passion Translation. It says, Beloved friends, here's your commitment. Beloved friends, what should be our proper response to God's marvelous mercies? to surrender yourselves to God, to be his sacred living sacrifices, and live in holiness, experiencing all that delights his heart, for this becomes your genuine expression of worship. Stop imitating the ideals and opinions of the culture around you. And that is our, our commitment. But now there's a process but be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit. And we don't want to miss that, okay? Again, this is not a work of the flesh. This is a work of the Spirit that takes place within us, but it is a a progressive work. Be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit through a total reformation, here it is, of how you think. You see? Change your thinking... You will change your life. Here's the result. This will empower you to discern God's will as you live a beautiful life, satisfying and perfect in His eyes. Many times when we mess up, and and young people, kids are really good at this, and and they'll find that they've gotten themselves in some kind of a trouble, they've made some kind of a mess. Okay, and and you begin to ask them about it, and uh, you'll often hear this excuse, I'm sorry, I, I just didn't think. My answer to that is, yes, you did think. You thought wrong. Okay, and because of your wrong thinking, your wrong actions followed. It's not just kids, it's adults as well. So our, our, our actions are based on what? How we think. How we think is based on our core beliefs. And so it's so very, very important to get our thinking straight. Do you want to live the abundant life that Jesus promised? Will you commit to it? And will you commit to the process of transformation? Transformation Starts with a choice, it's never easy, but you can, and you should, and by the help and grace of God, we will experience it on a daily basis. So let's go and and look at three thoughts this morning. Number one, and we've just, just as a review now, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Okay, yeah, Amen. Uh, Jeremiah 29 11, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And I love the fact that Tony pointed out some weeks ago the context of that verse. Jeremiah was writing to a group of individuals who uh, in a uh, temporal sense were about to lose everything. God was uh, bringing discipline to the nation of Israel and would allow the Babylonian army to come in and to destroy the nation and to take the dis- survivors' uh, captives to Babylon for 70 years. And in the process of that, Jeremiah gives them this word from the Lord. Yet I will give you hope and the future. I believe God has promised place within every one of us the potential to live an amazing, abundant life. God says in Psalm 139, or David rather, the psalmist says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made... Marvelous are your works, and that my soul, and there's that word soul again, and it's going to be so very important in just a little while, that my soul knows so well. I am fearfully, I am wonderfully made, and God has created me with the capacity to obtain and enjoy the abundant life which he has promised me. I grew up in Sunday school, and one of the songs we used to sing is every promise in the book is mine, every chapter, every verse, every line, okay? And as little kids, that, that theology was drilled into us that, that this word, the promises in this word are true, they are real, and God will work them out in our lives. So... He sees the he sees that God sees the potential within us. And uh, I like the example when uh, Saul, or not Saul, but uh, Samuel, uh, was directed by God to find a replacement for King Saul. And you know the story. Uh, Samuel was directed to go to the household of Jesse. And he said, You go to the household of Jesse, and, and there I'm going to show you who the individual is that will be the new king of Israel. And if you remember, uh, Samuel goes to Jesse and he says, bring your, bring your sons, bring your family, we're going we're to worship, and, and we're going to consecrate ourselves to the Lord. And Samuel knows, and I'm also going to anoint the new king of Israel. Jesse brings his seven sons, and one by one they come before him. And, and what does God say? Don't look at his appearance or at his physical stature. I've refused him. See, guys who, who look so, so qualified and the Lord says, not him, not him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Amen. Finally, Samuel's wondering, did I miss it? Jesse, is this all of your sons? Oh, well, there's David, the little guy out in the field. He's not much. Bring him. Would you love that? Bring him. And God says, that's the one. That's the one. I experienced a little bit of that, I guess, when I w- was growing up. When God had placed his hand on my life, I knew that God had called me uh, into ministry. I was 15 years old, and, and I knew that. hadn't shared it with anybody yet, but I knew it. And I overheard a conversation I wasn't supposed to overhear uh, between my, my parents. And I realize now my mother knew it as well, but we hadn't spoken. She, she just knew. And so speaking to my dad and, and discussing me, and she's like, uh, my father, um, well, he didn't, he didn't see much potential in his son at that time. And they're having a discussion, and my mom's like, well, I think God's calling him into ministry. And I remember Dad saying, no, not him. Uh, Neil, the oldest son, see, the oldest son was, um, had a very outgoing personality. I was very withdrawn and quiet. My older brother never seemed to meet a stranger. He was at ease in almost any situation, and, and I was much more comfortable, quiet in the corner. My brother was a straight-A student. Uh, The teachers told my parents, if your son John ever maintains a C average, uh, that's the most he's ever going to do. Okay, they didn't diagnose some learning disabilities that they diagnose today. You were just considered a slow learner and you were put in a dumb class, and I knew that. All right, but God knows the heart. And it's not so much the outward, it is the inward, and if the heart is right, God will take care of the rest of the deficits and put them together to enable you to do the thing that God has called you to do. But it's a journey, and that's what I want us to see. It's a journey. It's not just, um, my uncle went to an Oral Roberts crusade years ago, okay, and Oral Roberts is there and he's going to pray for people and there's a line a mile long. My uncle looked at it and he thought, my goodness, we're going to be here for a week just in the prayer line and the first couple of people came through and Oral Roberts laid hands on them and he, and he prayed for them and it's like we will never get out of here and then he stood up and he just went down the prayer line, be healed, be healed, be healed. And in just a few moments, each one got a touch. And, you know, really, that's all it takes, okay? But healing is not always instantaneous. And transformation, there may be events along the way. And in an instant, God touches something in your life. And in an instance, there's a deliverance. In the instance, there's a new insight. And in an instant, okay? But those are just pieces of the process that continues on in this journey of transformation. Let's take a few minutes to look at Paul's transformational journey. I think it's a good place to go. Uh, Philippians chapter 3. I'm not going to read a whole lot. I'm going to pull out a couple verses there. But uh, Philippians chapter 3 is a place many times if you're reading devotionals, your devotionals Beginning of the year, oftentimes writers will go to Philippians chapter 3. Why? Because Paul does three things in this chapter. He explores his past, he evaluates his present, and then he envisions and embraces his future. And I think in this matter of, of moving into the abundant life, this process of transformation, I think all three are important. And so the first thing that Paul does is he explores his past. And he says, concerning my past, I, I, I'm an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, Paul was proud of his pedigree. That's all right within uh, certain limitations. I grew up in a home, we were, we were Dutch. Not German Dutch, Holland Dutch. All of my grandparents came from Holland, Okay. And uh, when I was a little kid, we lived in a Dutch community. And, um, you know, there was, a, there was something that, that just went without saying until uh, a friend of mine, when I was in my uh, 20s, okay, and he was a little younger, looked up at me one day. He was also Dutch, and he just looked at me and he says, well, you know, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. <laughs> Paul had some of that in him. Okay, Paul had some of that in him, all right. Um, An Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin circumcised the eighth day. Here it is, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee. And then he says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Okay, Paul had some major accomplishments. Paul had a passion for God. I believe that Paul loved God as he knew him. Didn't really know him. He thought he did. But he had a passion for God. He had a passion for the things of God. But then on the negative, and this comes out of Galatians. He talks about it both places. I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Whoa, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? Well, Paul doesn't rest in his accomplishments. All right, he looks at it. Okay, these are are things I've done. These are things that I've accomplished. Okay. And he doesn't allow his failures to defeat him or to define him. He had to deal with his past. And I'll tell you this morning, sometimes the past is not easy to deal with, especially when it comes to the negative things that that are in our lives, all right? I know that oftentimes, uh, in times past, when uh, the enemy would bring up things that I'm not proud of in my own past, and... I believe I mentioned this in one message I brought here before when I was preaching on a Sunday morning years ago and out of the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. And I'm preaching through that chapter and there's a tape playing in my mind at the same time, but you don't deserve to be up here. There's things in your past. And it was just this downer of, you have no right to be here because of your past, and that tape was playing, and then all of a sudden, that voice was silenced. And I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit, which said, quote, what don't you understand about the definition of past? tell the story of a little dog we had years ago, her name was Polly. She was a cute little dog, and um, we, we loved her. She was half chihuahua and half beagle. Well, she was small like a chihuahua, but she looked like a beagle, okay? She was cuddly like a beagle. And we absolutely loved that dog, but Polly had a very strong will. Didn't always behave the way we thought she ought to behave. And one of the things that we had to teach her is you don't mess with the kitchen trash. But invariably, if we would forget to empty it, the temptation would be too great and she would get into it. Now, we lived on the second story above my parents' garage in those years. We were uh, starting a church in New Jersey and if we were out at night and we would come up the stairs, or anytime we came up the stairs, at the top of the stairs, the doorway, we would hear a thumping. It was Polly's tail thumping the door because she was so excited we're coming home. And you'd walk in the house and she would be so glad to see you and jump all over you and you'd pick her up and you'd love her, you know, and it was just this nice thing we had going on with Polly. But every once in a while, we wouldn't hear. There would be silence. I was thinking, uh-oh. And you would open the kitchen door, and you would walk in, and there would be the trash all over the place. Polly had been bad. And I disciplined her the best way I knew how, what I thought you were supposed to do. I'm reading a dog book right now, because Candy and I, Lord willing, will be getting a dog uh, sometime next summer. Long story, don't need to go there, but I'm reading this book, and I'm learning I've done almost everything wrong my whole life. (laughs) When it comes to raising animals, uh, Laura and Jerry, ought to get this book. It's not too late for your horse. And uh, if you haven't seen their dog, okay, Rhodesian Ridgeback. I mean, he's like this. Whoa. Okay, I'm not sure who rules the house. This book will help you. So anyway, one night we're coming home. It's late. And there's no thumping at the door. Friday night. Very busy week too busy to do what I should have done, which is empty the trash. And so the kitchen trash can was packed to the top with everything that goes in the kitchen trash, which you know, paper towels and coffee grinds and cans and eggshells and food scraps. It was all in there. And I walk into the kitchen, and it is all over the kitchen. It is all over the living room. There is trash over that whole place, and I want to tell you, I was furious. I should have been mad at myself. I'm angry at the dog, and I'm like, Where is that dog when I get my hands on her? And I go, and I don't know where the dog is. She's not in the living room, and it's only a four bedroom, two, four room apartment. She's not in the kitchen. She's not in the living room. She's not in the hallway. She's not in the bathroom. She's not in the little guest room. She's got to be in the master bedroom. Where is that dog? That dog is under the bed. And I'm going to get my hands on her. And I get down low and I'm going to I'm going to pull her out from under the bed and she scoots to the other side. I'm like, "Well, okay. I'll come around the other side. I get on this side of the bed and she scoots over to that side." And I'm like, "Okay, you have and now I'm down where I can finally, I'm about to get a hold of her. And here's this little dog, and she's sitting in the corner. She is shaking like a leaf. Her tail is between her legs. Okay, and it, yeah. Yeah, and my heart broke. And I realized, Polly's made a mess, and she can't fix it. And in that moment, this weird sense of compassion came over me. And I walked out of the bedroom and went into the living room and started to clean up her mess. The broom, the dustpan, the vacuum cleaner, the spray, anything. Finally, got it all cleaned up, went back in the bedroom. Got down on my hands and knees. Couldn't quite reach her. Had to go a little lower. I'm like this. I'm like this. And I finally managed to get a hold of the dog. And I slowly draw her out. Pick her up in my arms. And it's like, Polly, it's all right. I've cleaned up. And it reminds me of Adam and Eve in the garden, when in the midst of God's beautiful, perfect creation, they made a mess. They couldn't fix it. And God comes on the scene, Adam, Eve, where are you? He knew where they were. He needed them to know where they were. They were hiding under the bed. Quivering, shaking, unable to do a thing about their mess, knowing that the wrath of God is about to come down upon them. And what does he do? He draws them out on the basis that he had already in eternity past, cleaned up their mess. Where do you get that? First Peter, Jesus Christ, crucified from the foundation of the world. God had already made provision for their mess, and so we have the first animal sacrifice. And he and he takes the um, skins of those animals and he makes coats to cover them to cover their shame. He restores their mess. And while, yes, there were consequences, yet God made full provision. And somehow we've got to get a hold of that when it comes to our past and to realize God has taken care of your mess. There might be a few things that he's going to ask you to do along the way, but you are covered. God has made provision. And so there comes a time when the past, there's only one thing we can do. We acknowledge it, we learn from it, and then let it go. you got to learn to let it go. I love the Disney movie Frozen, not because I remember what the movie's about, but I like the theme song, let it go, let it go. If I, if I, I wish I would have had you set the thing up this morning and just, just, just to, to realize that when it comes to the past, there comes a point, you have to let it go. Not only your past, but how, whatever interactions, negative interactions in your life, what others have done, the hurts they have done. And, and we could have a whole message here today on, on forgiveness and releasing and, and ways to deal with the past, but ultimately it comes to a point where you have to say, I'm going to let it go. Paul says in this passage, forgetting those things which are behind. Okay, it's in the past. i let it go. Paul evaluates his present. And in the present, he's not regretting the past, nor is he fearing the future. Paul's living abundantly in the present. New King James, he says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I might lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. I like the Passion translation here. He says, I admit That I haven't yet acquired the absolute fullness that I'm pursuing. Oh, right. Paul's saying, hey, you know, I haven't reached the the full indeed. I have not reached the full overflowing. He says, but I'm pursuing, I am running with passion into his abundance. I like that. I'm running with passion into his abundance. Part of the abundant life is the journey. Don't miss the journey. That's an important part of it. And you say, well, you know, this is, this is what I think it ought to be. Well, you're, you're here. Don't miss the journey as God is bringing you to that place. So for Paul in the present, it was, it's like, okay, I, I'm doing it. I'm running with passion into his abundance. And then Paul envisions and embraces his future. Philippians 3 verse 12, Paul says, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. I was reading that a few weeks ago. Paul says, I've laid hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. What is that? What is that? What is the that that he's talking about? And there, there's several hints to it here in, in, in Philippians 3, but it wasn't until I, I was reading in, in Galatians one that uh, for me, it defined what that is. okay? In Galatians chapter 3 verse 16, Paul says, "But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb, all right, there's Paul's destiny, okay? A destiny from birth, All right, God separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, conversion experience on the Damascus road to do something, two things, to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Now you begin to see the that. What is it that Paul is pursuing? Number one, he said, I am pursuing Christ, that he, he says, to reveal his Son in me. That is the ultimate purpose that God has for us. That that, that is the ultimate. You go to Romans chapter 8, passage that all of us are really familiar with, and especially verse 28, and we, we all probably know it by heart. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Okay? Now, most people short that verse and say, well, all things work together for good. And, well, it all works together for good. But what we think is good and what God thinks is good may be two very, very different things. I think when we think of good, we think for my pleasure, for my comfort, for my well-being, for a good-pleasing outcome that will make me happy. It all works together for good. It's not what it says. All things work together for good to those who know the Lord. Okay, called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, all right, that's eternity past. He also predestined, that is your destiny, to be conformed to the image of His Son, that is, process and that is what God is ultimately after, to have sons and daughters in his own image. It goes back to the law of first mention. If you want to really understand the Bible, you've got to start in Genesis. If you want to understand our purpose, what we're here for, go back to the beginning, go back to creation. It says God created them, God created man, male and female, he created them In his own image. When man fell into sin, that image was marred. Now, from Genesis through Revelation, we see the restoration of the image of God in the children of God. And so the journey that God has us on and the thing that will bring us ultimate satisfaction is if we will cooperate with God as He is bringing us into conformity with His Son. But there's a second thing that Paul says here, which is part of that, okay? Back to Galatians. To reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. That was Paul's individual calling. Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He was called to be a missionary, to take the message of the gospel to the Gentile world. That's not you and me, I don't think. I don't know. Maybe maybe we got a few apostles here this morning. I'm not sure. I just know that I'm not one. Okay. So I, I think under that, that, that call that is for all of us to be like Jesus, there is a, a secondary And that is God's plan and God's purpose for your life and and, and different areas of life. And as we cooperate with God, I believe God will make that known. It will come to the forefront, okay? And, and, And it will be connected to the gifts and the talents and the abilities that God has placed within us along with the moving of the Holy Spirit as he's leading, guiding, directing our lives, okay, as we move into God's purpose for us as individuals. Now, let's take a few moments and talk about the components that are necessary for abundant living. Five necessary components. And I, I, I think of this, uh, not that it was original with me, Jesus came up with it first. I think he was right. (laughs) I say that tongue-in-cheek. But it's amazing when the rubber meets the road, how many professed Christians I find that disagree with what God has said and then wonder why they're not living the abundant life that he has promised. And the Lord uses a building analogy, and I'm not going to read these verses, but you know them in Matthew chapter 7, where he tells the story of the wise man and the foolish man. Both of them were building a house, and you know the story. They build a house, and the rains come, and the floods come. The life comes at them as they're building their lives. One house crashes. One house stands firm. What was the difference? It was the foundation. What was the foundation? Jesus said, the one who hears these sayings of mine and puts them into practice. In other words, the foundation is the Word of God. And if you're going to have a successful life, you're going to have to develop a biblical mindset a biblical world view, and when I'm talking about a world view, I'm not necessarily talking about the whole world, but I'm talking about your world, and and to have this this mindset where your mind is enlightened and, and, and your thinking is transformed until you and God are in agreement with what He has said in His Word. Be not conformed to this world. Philip's translation puts it this way. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. In other words, don't think like the world thinks, but rather be transformed until you begin to think like God thinks. Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 2, and he said, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus. I love the, the this saying that I've heard Jack Taylor say many times. A lot of you knew Jack Taylor. And, and Jack, Jack would say this, Lord, change my mind on every point on which you and I disagree. You know, if we could just make that our motto for 2023. Lord, change my mind on every point on which you and I disagree. Oh, right. That is life-changing. It's simple. If you don't get anything else out of the message today, take that home with you. Lord, change my mind. Change my mind. And let me tell you, it's not going to happen by osmosis, putting your Bible under your pillow and absorbing it. I don't need to preach this, you know it, but I'll say it anyway. Study! To show yourself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, I'm thankful for Church on the Rock, and I'm thankful for a pastor who's a good Bible teacher uh, and and will take the time to study and bring us through a book of the Bible at a time, because I think that's the only way pastors ought to preach. Okay, I'm doing a one-off, a topical. But I love the way Tony, he's teaching the Word of God, but I'll tell you, that's not enough. What you need to do, what I need to do, is begin to dig in the Word and study it for ourselves. And there are times when Tony has said something, I thought, I'm not sure I agree with that. I don't have to agree with Tony, but I've got to go back to the Word of God and agree with what God has said. And if, and if God, God shows me he's right, he's right. And if I think he's wrong, I may say something. I may not. But the bottom line is take it home and test it. Don't take anything a preacher says because he's a preacher. The Dutch word for minister, pastor, or preacher is domini. I had a man in my church. His name was Jack. And I'd say, Jack, you really need to get in the word of God. Now that's why I've got the domini. Okay, and now that's why we got the Domini, okay? And for Jack, it was good enough. I come Sunday morning, I listen to what you have to say. That's enough Bible for the week. I, I listen to the Domini. You need more than the Domini. You need to get into the Word of God. It is foundational. Some of you know Jonathan Van Concrete. Jonathan, for many years, was youth pastor at um, Trinity Presbyterian, now Trinity Wellspring. Jonathan noticed in the years that he was youth pastor. There were a lot of kids that grew up in the church. They grew up in youth group. They went on missions trips. They were very active. But when they went off to college, they turned away from their faith. It bothered him. And so he began to do a study. He began to do research. What is the difference in the kids who go off to college and remain firm in their faith, and those who don't. He said it had nothing to do with perfect church attendance. It didn't have anything to do with going on youth trips or not going on youth trips. It didn't have anything to do with whether the parents were deacons, elders, pastors, or just laymen. And we make those titles, and they're so artificial. Okay, but it's just, just looking at all the factors. What is the deciding factor? And so Jonathan went after it, and he, and he studied for a long period of time, and he came to this conclusion. The kids who made it grew up in homes where mom and dad lived it, talked about it, prayed with the kids, encouraged the kids, strengthened the kids. Basically, what they did, they saw their home as a microcosm of the larger church. Mom and dad were the pastors of the home, and they practiced the 52 one another's of the New Testament on a daily basis. And that was the key. And I say, parents, if you want your kids to make it, it's got your home has got to be built on the word of God, but it's got to be functioning in the home, okay, on on a daily basis, seven days a week. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse seven. You know these words: "Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart." With all your soul, with all your strength. Yeah, that's vital. Parents, you need to love the Lord. You need to be all out for God, and your kids need to know it. But there's more than that. He said, And these words which I command you today, God's word shall be in your heart. "...you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." What is he saying? The Word of God needs to be central in the home, okay? It needs to be lived out in the home. It needs to be taught in the home. There needs to be this vital living re- reality of Christ in the home, not just as religion, but, but the true Christ. That atmosphere doesn't mean that the parents are going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that we're not going to make mistakes. Kids are very friendly, are very forgiving if you'll acknowledge you've made a mistake. You see, again, it's living out the one another's. You know, you don't somehow uh, lower your authority in the home when you go to a child and say, you know what, I was wrong, please forgive me. Built on the Word. I've got to move on here, I'm already running out of time. All right, four things now in this building on the Word, and I'm just going to give them to you quickly uh, because actually they're four studies in and of themselves. Four necessary resources to build the abundant life. Four pillars of an abundant, fulfilling, transformed life. We've got the foundation. It is the Word of God. Now, what are the four things that are necessary to live the abundant life? Love, Inc., we know we are called to reach out to the poor, people in need, okay, that their lives might be transformed, okay? We want to see them come into the abundance of Christ. So, for me number 1, you just you have to define poverty. What is poverty? Poverty is lacking the necessary resources to live the abundant life that Jesus promised. The problem is all too many times we don't realize Those four critical resources. We think immediately, and this is where usually we will feel need, and that is in the area of the physical and the material. Physical, the material, money, food, clothing, housing, transportation, physical health and well-being, vocation, career, and all too often in America, our stuff defines us, our success and our importance and the whole society is geared to create a sense of entitlement which says, I deserve the good life. How many, how many do you think the commercials, you deserve it, okay? You deserve it. I mean, even McDonald's got it right. You deserve a break today. Well, I don't consider McDonald's much of a break, but it's this entitlement of all the things that we need or, 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 or we think we need, the things we, we want to have, the things we would like to possess. And you've got to change your thinking, allow the Holy Spirit to change your thinking and get it into sync with the Word of God. Uh, Tim and Anna Fetterman teach budget mentoring. What is budget mentoring? It is simply telling people, teaching people how to take the principles uh, that are in God's word and apply them to our finances, to our income, so that we can live the abundant life. The problem almost always is not that we don't make enough money, it's what we don't know how to do, what to do with it, what we do make. Again, with wanting more than we need to have. When. Our grandkids have a birthday. Kendi and I have started taking them out for dinner. Uh, Especially uh, Laura and Jeremiah's kids, when you've got nine, okay, the family doesn't go out to eat too often. So we like to take them one at a time to a nice restaurant and and treat them to a a meal for their birthday. Sometimes the little ones will do something special. Something I used to do with the big ones when they were little was take them to the dollar store. I'd go to Laura's house. I'd say, come on, boys. This was the first three. Ezra... Um, Avner and Daniel, okay, when it's nine, got to run the names in your mind. Okay, but come on, guys, we're going to the dollar store. Okay, give them all the dollars. It's a big deal. They'd go spend a dollar. So Eva turned six back in, in November, and uh, we're taking her out to a nice restaurant. We had a nice meal. We enjoyed it, and I said afterwards, okay, hey, Eva, when we're done eating, Grandpa's going to take you to the dollar store, and we're going to go shopping. You want to do that? Oh, yeah, that was great. Okay, six years old, you still enjoy the dollar store. So we pulled up to the dollar store, We're about to get out of the car, and I looked over. I said, so, Eva, how many dollars would you like Grandpa to give you? And she thought, now, six years old, she thought for a minute, and she goes, I would like $6. No, she said, I would like $3. Okay, it was three. She said, I would like $3. That's not a big request. But I looked at her, and I said, well, Eva... What if Grandpa only intends to give you a dollar? She got quiet. She looked up at me. She goes, then I will be content with that. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You know she got about five dollars. So you have the whole physical temporal thing but what we have to realize there are things that are more important and if we're looking at the four pillars of this building we are constructing on the the word of God this life we're constructing we have to get to the spiritual and I know you would agree It begins with the new birth. You must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. And bottom line, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you will never live the abundant life that He promised. Our relationship with God is number one. The spiritual comprises our belief system. Here we identify and define truth and, and how that truth will influence our lives and it is so very, very important that we get this straight and that we have a relationship, an ongoing relationship with Jesus. Okay, Realizing that it, it is not again just that event but now it is a process where I am cultivating my relationship with Him. And then the Third is the relational. That's my relationship with others. Uh, doing some premarital counseling, and I, I'm using these five components Okay, in premarital counseling, and I'm like, guys, one of the most important things is going to be relationships, and not just the relationship between the two of you, but obviously the relationship the two of you have with her parents and with his parents, and in this case, with um, what's going to be a blended family, and with his children and, and her children, and, and then your friends and and the people that uh, encompass your sphere of influence. And I, I tell you, the relational is so important. Our current, our past relationships, our our mentors and our role models, our support system, our family, our friends—how these people have influenced who we are how we behave, and I tell you, the Bible gives you the answers to have godly, fulfilling relationships. Amen. Amen. And then there is the emotional, and that comes back to the realm of the soul. John talks about prospering even as your soul prospers. Your soul is the place where you experience life. It is your sense of well-being and self-worth. It includes the things that we love and the things that we hate. There you will find your attitudes and possibly your addictions. Psychologists will refer to it as your mental health. And... If you want your soul to be healthy. Because here it is. Here, this is where we experience life. It is in the realm of the soul. The, the physical, okay, it's going not so much what you have, but how you say it. All right? And the material. And, and you can take these, these other things, okay? But realize it's where it's experienced in the soul. And so, if I'm going to be happy, if I'm going to be fulfilled, okay, if I'm living in abundance, it's because I have these other things in balance built upon the Word of God. That's why... You can take a multimillionaire, I had a relative, oh my goodness, she had more money uh, than I could count. She had anything and everything her heart desired, and she was one of the most miserable and one of the most unhappy people I've ever known. Her husband owned a fairly large dairy corporation, but their dairy corporation was nothing compared to the guy that owned all the quarries and the cement companies and so on in that part of the country okay they were friends okay and so they had so much more than her and it was like she was never happy never satisfied and you've known people like that and they can't enjoy why because they don't have it right on the other hand I've known people and you probably have known people who have very little of this world's goods and here's my last illustration I may have shared this with you before I don't remember but it was a woman by the name of Anna I was planning a church in New Jersey, and one of the families in the church said, you've got to meet our friend Anna, and you have to hear her story. And so they took me to Anna's house. It was in a very poor section of the city of Patterson, okay? Narrow houses built on 25-foot lots, just one after the other, almost connecting each other, little alley between each one. Run down, in need of repairs, poor section of town. So we get up on the porch and knock on the door and Anna lets us in and I I survey the room. Uh, The two things that I remember, number one, I remember it was spotlessly clean and it smelled good. But it was old. It needed paint. It needed carpet. It needed new furniture. Okay, you get the picture. And then there was Anna who was dressed neat, had an apron on. She was a lady in her 60s at that time. This is back in 1970. so a you know, typical grandma kind of picture that uh, you know somebody might paint a picture of a grandma back in the 60s. one of the most serene individuals I've ever met. There was something of the overflow from that lady that you just sensed. And then Anna told us her story how she had been married to a very abusive husband. He was an alcoholic, he was very abusive, and she suffered abuse most of her married life. The husband had died. She had one daughter. The daughter grew up in that atmosphere with an abusive father and married, as some people so often do. They call it trauma bonding, if you want the word, but. She finds the man of her dreams who turns out to be just as abusive as his father. Only in this case, he murdered her. In one of his rages, he murdered his wife, murdered Anna's um, daughter. Trial, sent to prison, 25 years to life in prison. Anna said, there's only one thing I could do. I knew I had to forgive him. And so she said, I I wrote him a letter. I settled it in my heart. By the help and grace of God, I made the choice to forgive him, and I forgave him, and she wrote him a letter, and he wrote her back. And they began a correspondence. Through correspondence, she was able to lead him to Christ and now was in the process of discipling him as he is growing in his faith while he's serving a prison sentence for life. Friends, the abundant life does not consist on the things that we have or the things that we've accomplished, but it's the mind that has the mind of Christ, okay, to where we can see things as he sees them and then live out that abundant life in whatever the circumstances and truly experience the flow of Christ. And that is our greatest influence. And that's the thing that's going to make people stand up and take notice. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he says, Be ready to give an answer to everybody who asks you concerning the hope that is in you. Like Jeremiah, Peter was writing through people who were going through hard times, through severe persecution, but they had something on the inside, okay? Because they had the mind of Christ, they had the peace of Christ and the joy of Christ. May it be so in our lives today. Amen, amen, amen. Amen. We're out of time. John, if you want to come up and pray our verse and bless us and close us. The only thing I'm going to add to that is, I mean, if you have Bibles in your house, okay, you have everything you need. If you have Bible in your house and Jesus in your heart, that's all you need. Uh, if you'll do that real good, 2023 will be fine. If you do it real good, I'll have to go do something else for a living. Yeah, I mean, the first step is uh, commitment and Kind of just what's been going on in our country this week. You just think, you know, fortunately to vote for who's going to be the speaker of your house, and that should be Jesus, it takes a vote of one. (laughs) You're the majority. So you get to make that decision. And you don't have to wait two years, every two years to to take that vote. You can take that vote every, you should be taking that vote every single day. And um, so, Lord, we just ask that you give us that indwelling of your spirit, um, that comfort, that peace, that joy, and, and to help us to be obedient, to make that commitment, Lord, to be transformed and become more like you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.